one. So everything we've done up to now, I went back and looked. It's been seven weeks is all introduction. That's nice, seven-week introduction. So Paul, all he's done at this point is set up kind of the meat of his letter. He's never met these guys before, these Christians in Colossae, and so he's establishing some type of rapport with them. And and now he shifts, and he's going to start getting into why he wrote the letter. We've said before that most of what's happening in this church is good. The report that Paul gets from Epaphras, his protege, it's good. Most of it's good, but there is this element of false teaching that's kind of crept into the church. And so Paul is trying to address that. Paul is kind of this apostle is trying to address the false teaching that's come into the church. That's part of his role. Part of his job is to protect the flock. And so he's going to do that. And it's interesting to me the way that he chooses to go about combating this false teaching. We'll get into what the false teaching is over the next several weeks, it actually doesn't occur in our passage this morning. Again, this is interesting to me that the way he, he starts is by establishing the truth. He retells them the truth. Uh, for Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We're probably only going to do 15 through 17 this morning. 15 through 20, most folks say, is one of the oldest hymns uh, in um, Christianity. It was written before this letter was written. And Paul quotes that hymn reestablishing this is what's true. And I think for us, the picture there is the easiest way and the best way to combat error is to be familiar with the truth. I worked at a bank for a couple of summers, and I I was a teller. And during our training, we had, like, fraud prevention day. And I thought they were going to put all the best counterfeits up on the screen, and they were going to tell us all the scams that people run to try to Um, con the bank and all they did was they just came in they gave everybody a huge stack of money and they just said count it and then you counted it and they said count it again and then count it again and then count it again and count it again and we were done and we said when's fraud prevention day and the guy said if you know what real money feels like you'll know fake money when you touch it you don't even have to look at it because you know what the real thing feels like and that's true for us when it comes to truth If we know the truth, and there's a what component and a who component to truth as Christians, then we'll know when something either what or who comes our way that's off, even by just a little bit. So there's two dimensions to truth. There's content. There's kind of the creed. Um, There's that Apostles' Creed up there. We don't usually, we actually don't usually, we never say this, but this is a picture of There's content to the Christian faith. You can't just believe anything. There's certain things that we believe. If you look through this, you'll notice when we baptize somebody, we ask questions based on this creed. Do you believe that these things are true? Again, you can't just believe anything. There's there's doctrine there, and there's there's truth that we can write down. I believe these things. There's There's a what. 2 Timothy 3 says this. Starting in verse 14, but as for you, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that that's the what there's a what and it's contained in here and it's kind of. There's some different things, creeds and different things that kind of summarize what, what we believe. And there's also a who, Jesus, John 14, 6. I'm the way, I'm the truth. There's a what component, what do you believe in a who? Who do you 
believe in both of those, the what and the who we receive through the Holy Spirit. John says in John 16, 13, Jesus says in John 16, 13, when he's kind of preparing his disciples for his departure, he says, I'm going to send the spirit of truth and he will guide you into all truth. So we know the what and we know the who through the Holy Spirit. One of the things that is plain if you read through the New Testament, as we approach the end with a capital E, I don't know when that is, my lifetime, my grandkids' lifetime, a million years, I have no idea. But at some point, everything's going to come to an end. Very plain, read Revelation, you can see that. And Jesus, Paul, John, all of them, Peter, as they're in their letters, as they're talking about the end, they say deception is going to increase. 2 Timothy 2.4 says this. 2 Timothy, excuse me, 4.2. Preach the word. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. They won't put up with the truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So what Paul is saying is, Timothy, you've got to know the truth and you've got to tell the truth because there's going to come a time where people don't even want to hear it. And they're going to reject you and they're going to look for people who are going to tell them what they want to hear. You might know folks like that even now. This is what Jesus says in Matthew. Matthew 24, his disciples say kind of, when, when, when is the end coming? And he's addressing them. He pulls them aside. He's addressing them privately. This is just to the disciples. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Christ and will deceive many. Down to verse 10, at that time, this at the end, many will turn away from the faith. They will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That's a scary thought. The love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Down in verse 23, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So the picture we see is as we push towards the end, wherever you want to put us on the, here's the end, wherever you want to put us on the timeline, the closer we get to it, and every day is closer to the end, no matter how far away it is, deception will increase. There will be false teaching and false teachers. There will be false Christs. John says, in First John, I think it's 2, says antichrist. That means people who are against Christ. That many antichrists have already entered into the world. And he's saying they've come from you. He's talking to the church. False prophets, false Christs, false teachers who will perform these great signs, these great wonders. They're going to lead a lot of, and he's, again, remember he's talking, I think it's in verse 3 in Matthew 24. It says he pulled his disciples aside. I think the word he uses says privately. He's on the Mount of Olives, privately taught. This is the inner core who he's saying, you will be deceived. That's not a scary thing for us, but it's a reality check. Nobody's fooled by monopoly money. We're fooled by something that looks really, really, really close to the real thing. And that's what these false teachers and false Christs and false... They're not going to have 666 tattooed on their forehead. They're not going to have a... Honk if you hate Jesus bumper sticker. That's not it. No forks, no, no pitchforks, no tails, no horns. 
They're going to sound like us. They're going to look like us. They're going to have a resume, great signs and wonders that's very appealing to us. And if we don't know the truth, they're going to lead us astray because they're going to be 98% of the way there. Again, that's not a scary thing. That's a reality thing and how important it is for us to know the truth, content and person. Big concept before we jump into Colossians. We're not going to dig too deep. It wouldn't do us any good anyway because we don't understand it. God is Trinity. One God, three persons. Three persons, one God. So as we get into this stuff about Jesus, keep that in mind. Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Two pictures, you have to hold both of them. I'm one man. I have three different roles. Father, husband, pastor. It's all me. I'm doing all of those, but I have three distinct roles. That's kind of the oneness of God. He's God, one God, three distinct persons. Another flip, David and Christina and Joshua. They're one family, the Busey family, but there's three distinct people in that family. David, Christina, Joshua. Hold both of those together. If you hold on to just one of them, it leads you in a ditch. The oneness, one guy, three different roles, and the threeness, one family, three different persons. Kind of hold both of those together. That's the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, came to earth, was born to Mary, was named Jesus, lived for 30 years as Mary and Joseph's son, was baptized by John the Baptist. That launched him on a three-year public ministry where he preached, teached, healed all around the theme of the kingdom of God. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends to the Jewish leaders who handed him over to Pilate, who crucified him. He was dead, buried, three days later, rose from the dead, 40 days after that, ascended into heaven. All of that he did. He did as God and man. Fully God, fully man. Another thing you're not going to get. 100% God and 100% man. Not 50-50, 100-100. That's 200, you can't do that. I don't know what to say. If you can give 110%, then Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. So hold on to those things. If you, if that's, we can talk about that later, and I can help you kind of dig into that theologically. But for right now, as we get into this, you need to keep that in mind. Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal, all God. And the second person of the Trinity, the Son, came to earth and was named Jesus. And when he was on earth, fully God, fully man, still that way, fully God, and fully man. So here's what Paul says about this Jesus, this Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, in whose kingdom we have been transferred. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus says in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has also seen the Father. Now, the idea of image, for some of us, we think picture. We see that picture. So this is a picture of my son, Nate, maybe. That's not. That is. I wasn't trying to be cute. That was the only picture I had on my phone. So that's a picture of Nate. That's an image of him. It's a visual representation of Nate. But that's not him, obviously. He's 180 miles away in South Georgia right now. That's not him at all. And so when we hear, when we read, it's kind of a gotcha. He's the image of the invisible God. Well, maybe he's not God. He's just a picture of who God is, but the idea of image that Paul is using is 
Much more like saying, Nate is the spitting image of me. He's not. I know how to eat a dip cone much better than that. But the, the idea there, it's not he's a picture of me. It's you see me in him. And that's what Paul means by saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We see God in Jesus. John 1, 1 through 3. The Word became flesh. Hebrews 1, 2 and 3. Jesus is the exact representation. Exact representation of God. So you want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the visible, He is the image of the invisible God. You can um, take that down if you want. A few thoughts off of that. That moves God from generic to specific. 85% of the people in the United States believe in God. You ask them three questions and you're going to figure out they're all over the place. God is a very ambiguous, very large concept and everybody kind of brings their ideas to the table. So when you ask, do you believe in God, eight and a half out of every ten people you meet are going to say, absolutely. That doesn't mean it's the same God you're talking about. What Jesus does is he particularizes this concept of God. Takes it from general, ambiguous, you fill in the blanks to know. This is the character of this God that we believe in. Again, that's why it's so important to know the truth. People use the same vocabulary and mean radically different things. If you can center in on who Jesus is, that's the God that you're talking about. We see this idea of Jesus being the image of the invisible God. It also makes his plan for us very plain. We say all the time, Romans 8, 29, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. That's an echo of Genesis 1.27. In the image of God, he created them. In the likeness of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's the same thing. We said last week, God never abandoned the original plan. Sin marred his original intention for all of us. It marred the image of God. We were all created in the image of God, marred by sin, And God has been working to recreate us in the image of God. This idea of being conformed in the image of Jesus, that's not foreign. That was was the original plan and purpose for all of us. It's not something uh, extra or additional that God is imposing upon you. He's trying to draw out of you who he originally created you to be, which says a lot about his agendas, his agenda for us. He made us in his image, and he's working to recreate that image in us. That is what he is about more than anything else, more than our comfort, more than our fulfillment, more than our happiness. He is about restoring this image that he originally created. When you read, be holy for I'm holy, be perfect for I'm perfect, what God is saying is be who you are. I created you in my image and I'm trying to recreate this image of God, this image of Jesus. And you say, well, who is that? Who? I'm not omnipotent. No, I'm not omniscient. No, I'm not omnipresent. No, look at Jesus, the, the image of the invisible God. That's what he's trying to do in you. It has to do with your character and your outlook. So I would say the third thing is you have to, I have to, be experts in the Gospels. We need to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the Bible we just read, every bit of it is inspired. God, some of it I don't get. The genealogies don't do a whole lot for me. The geography doesn't make a whole lot of sense a lot of times. There is material that's more important than others. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, top of the list. We need to be experts in that. We talked for the past several weeks the importance of reading the Bible regularly. Paul says, I want you growing in the knowledge of God. That's knowing and doing these things that we know. 
you've got to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I know John, to me, super confusing, long sermons that are pretty, that are, they're just weird. They're really metaphorical. I'm straightforward. Some of you literary people will like John a lot more. If you're like me, start with Mark. It's short, action-packed, not a lot of talking. Just get to it. You like poetry and stuff, you can read John. Start there. You need to know those. They need to be in you. And yes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say a lot of the same stuff. But they say it for different reasons and in different ways and has a different point. So you need to read all three of them. If you're on some type of plan where you're kind of reading through the Bible, you just need to dip back into the Gospels regularly. You need to know those four books as well as you know anything because that's where we see who Jesus is and he is the image of the invisible God. The point of the Bible, one of the main, is to reveal God to us. So read the section that's the clearest where he's saying, this is who I am, living life like you. No Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't imply that he was created. Like I might say, you know, Tom is the firstborn son of mine, or Mary Davidson is the firstborn in my family. Well, that implies, it doesn't, it's set. She, we had her. She was created. She's born. We existed before her. So is this saying that Jesus is created? He's not co-eternal with the Father. The Son is not eternal with, no, at all. The idea of firstborn here has to do with uniqueness and supremacy. And if you read, Paul just makes the point starting in verse 16, and he just hammers the same point for the next two verses. For by Jesus, all things were created. So if Jesus created all things, he couldn't be created because that would have meant he had to create himself, which is impossible. So he stands above all of that. He is unique in creation in that he is not created. And he is supreme over all creation, superior to all of creation, because he created everything. All things for by him, for by Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That's everything. Everything's either visible or invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. We'll talk more about those things in chapter 2. But for right now, those are spiritual uh, forces, spiritual powers. Not demon. According to the New Testament, there seems to be a distinction between the demons that you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And how Jesus kind of deals with those and casts demons out of people and sends them into pigs and all of that's kind of over here and then you've got these powers these principalities these rulers these authorities that appear to be more cosmic in nature they don't appear to ever inhabit people or really that they just, they seem to be out here up here somewhere they were cre- and what Jesus, what Paul is saying is they were created by Jesus therefore he is superior to all of them it's not star wars there's not a good force and a bad force and we don't know who's going to win Jesus created all of it. And again, in chapter 2, we'll see what, how Jesus specifically deals with these powers and principalities. For, for us today, all we need to see is that he created them, therefore he is supreme over them. So he's the firstborn over all creation because by, by him, by Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, those are all those spiritual beings or whatever they are. All things were created by him, And all things were created for him. That means he's the Lord of everything. This is Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things. That means he gets to inherit everything. 
and through whom God made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's the writer of Hebrews saying the same thing Paul just said. Everything is made by him. Everything is made for him. Everything is made through him. So what that means to me, if everything is created by him, everything's created through him, for him, he's going to inherit all things. It just doesn't make sense to me that you would keep anything from him. That's somewhere to me on the continuum between silly and self-destructive. It doesn't make sense. Bo addressed a lot of that during that last song, and so we'll move on. But to me, he's the Lord of everything because he made everything, and everything was made for him. My car breaks down, I take it to the dealer. You made it, you know how to fix it. When it breaks down, why don't you take it to the guy who made it? He made it, he knows how to fix it. And he knows what its ultimate purpose is for. There's nothing that stands outside the sphere of his lordship. Paul, five times in two verses, all things, all things, all things, all things, all things. Everything is included in all things. So he's the Lord of all of it. So bring it to him. Jesus is before all things. Again, making the same point again, that Jesus is supreme. He's superior over everything that he's created. And in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Or according to Hebrews, he upholds everything, sustains everything by his word. This idea of holding all things together, things cohere. God's the band that holds things large and small together. I use this... um, illustration a couple of years ago, but most of you are new since then. Will you help me grab? Y'all are both pregnant. Y'all can't help me grab anything. I got it. Nope, I got it. No, I'm good. Hmm. So, this is what we got. I have my life. So, this is me. This is my life. And what I do is I start loading it up with stuff. So this is my family. They're the main course. So I got Misty. I've got the children, the things that I think about with them. You know, Nate's going to school next year and how he's going to do and are we going to have to get braces and are they going to make the soccer team and are we ever going to teach him how to be respectful? And so all these things are happening (laughs) here. And then I've got work. This is I'm not certain why they make this this way. So I got work over here, and, you know, are we going to have enough money to do the new building, and do people like me when I talk, and, you know, I'm self-conscious. So all these things are happening with work. We've got to do stuff, and we've got small groups coming, and so I've got all of this happening, and then I've got, you know, finances, and are we going to have, am I saving for college? Do I have enough money in retirement? Is there even going to be a stock market in two years? And so I've got all this stuff happening and then I've got my future and you know I'm getting close to middle age I guess and so have I have I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish and does my life mean anything and then I have my friends over here and you know I've talked to some guys this week who are struggling in some areas and so I want to help them but how do I help them and how involved do I get and what's really my responsibility is it any of my business and then somewhere I'm trying to figure out I got God, 
all right, you have plans for me, and am I doing that? Am I being obedient? Am I walking in the way that you want me to walk? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I still a jerk? And so I've got all this stuff that I'm trying to hold. And for some of you, your plate's like seven times this. You just got stuff, because you've got your parents on here too, in addition to your immediate family, and you've got school, and you've got career, you've got all this stuff. My life is easy compared to a lot of y'all. And you've got all this stuff, and the thing is, this is you. You're this plate, and you're just waiting on it to split. It's not going to split. I'm going to hold my hand under it. You're waiting on it to bust, because for you, you hold all things together. You sustain everything. God doesn't. You know in your head God does, but you don't live that way. You live like you sustain everything and that everything holds together in you. And what Paul says and what Hebrew says is no. Why don't you let me give you a new plate? I hold all things together. I sustain everything. This is where we want this issue is not a logistical problem. And it does not require a logistical solution. This is not about time management. This is not about the fact that you can't say no. This is not about overscheduling. This is a heart issue that says, I hold all things together. If you pull me out, the whole Jenga tower falls. You won't say that because you're not that proud. But you live that way. You live like, without me, all of this falls apart. The kids fall apart, the marriage falls apart, my parents fall apart, the future falls apart, the job falls apart. That's where you are. That's a heart issue. You can't address a heart issue logistically. That's like if, if I hurt you at some point, I di- I'm going to. I'm going to disappoint you and forget your name. I'm gonna, something's going to happen, and I'm going to disappoint you, and so you take your ball and go to another church. That's solving a heart issue logistically. Well, let me just move down the street to somewhere else. You haven't solved the problem. The problem is I hurt your feelings. And that's only solved by coming to me and talking to me and us figuring it out. You forgiving me, me apologizing. The same thing is true here. Saying it'll be better when the kids are back in school or it will be better when I get a promotion or when this job is done, everything will... No. No. You're trying to address a heart issue logistically, and it never works. Some of you have been on that same treadmill for 5 and 8 and 10 and 25 years. Did it ever change except for the week that you were at the beach? It doesn't, does it? And so some of us think, well, I just need to retire and move to the beach. You're still addressing a heart issue logistically. At some point, we have to say, you know what? I think, I know it's wrong in my head, but I live like I hold all things together. All of these people in my life are dependent upon me. I'm the foundation on which all of this rests. If you pull me out, it all falls apart. And that's how some of you live. And that's how you've got to fix it. And the way you fix it is by recognizing Jesus holds all things together. Jesus sustains everything by his powerful word. What does that look like practically? It looks like trusting him. I don't care how busy you are. That's, that's your, you. Some of you live in the red line and you're fine with that and that's okay. If that's how you live. It's not about how packed your calendar is. It's about how anxious your heart is and whether or not in your heart you honestly think 
You are the key block in this tower. Again, no one's ever going to say that out loud because we all know, oh, it's Jesus, it's God, I, I get it. Does your life reflect that? Particularly, does the condition of your heart reflect the fact that you realize he holds everything together? I'm responsible for my choices, and that's it. I'm not responsible for anybody. I'm not even responsible for my kids' choices. I can't make them choose. They have free will. They make choices. I'm responsible for mine, and I'm 100% not responsible for the results of my choices. I can't control all those variables. The thing God holds me accountable to is what did you do? How did you respond? What choices did you make? The rest of it, you've got to hold all that stuff together. I can't. Let's pray.